What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. In 1948, English author George Orwell wrote what would become one of the defining novels of the 20th century, 1984. He was writing in the years following World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. It was a tense time, full of uncertainty, and the specter of Soviet communism loomed. I think that context is really important to understanding, um, you know, what he was trying to warn readers about with this novel, with the dystopian novel. So showing us where, you know, the logic of things he's seeing unfold in his time, you know, where that ends, if, if left to itself, if people don't push back while they still can. I'm Priya Sapia, and I am professor of history at Stanford, where I teach uh, modern British history and the history of the British Empire. And I also have another title, which is the Raymond A. Spruance Professor of International History. In 1984, Orwell introduced all kinds of terms to describe the dystopian society of his novel, such as thought police, memory hole, big brother, and unperson. And in his view, Orwell wasn't attempting to describe a fantastical world with no correspondence to our own or even just satirizing the excesses of the Soviet regime. He was sounding a warning to his own society. So it's a very hopeless, um, airless kind of dystopian world. Um, but the point of it, uh, and I guess of all dystopian novels, is, is to inspire action. It, you know, there's a kind of paradoxical logic to dystopian novels where they're supposed to agitate you to, to fight for utopian causes, right? Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Priya Satya to discuss George Orwell's 1984. George Orwell is famous for writing about people who are oppressed by systems of power. But he himself was born to the powerful. His father's family was English and had for generations worked for the British Imperial Projects, first in the Jamaica sugar plantations and later in the British Raj. His forefathers had old ties to the empire. They, they had slaves in Jamaica, his, I think, great-great-grandfather. Um, and then his great-grandfather was sort of an absentee landlord um, for the plantations they had in Jamaica. And the, their family was, you know, handsomely compensated when the British abolished slavery in the empire. In 1833, Britain passed the Slavery Abolition Act, which made purchasing or owning enslaved people illegal within the British Empire. Britain's economy relied heavily on slave labor. So when roughly 800,000 enslaved people were freed, the enslavers took a financial hit. To help ease the transition, the British government shelled out roughly 20 million pounds across the empire to previous enslavers. Orwell's family received some of that wealth. And then, you know, 
Orwell's own father was in the opium department of the Indian Civil Service. And his mother um, had also grown up in South Asia, I guess what we would call Southeast Asia. Uh, at that time, Burma was part of the British Indian Empire. Her father had been uh, like a, a businessman speculating in teak, uh, teak wood in Burma. So she also had ties to that region. In the early 1900s, Orwell's parents were stationed in the northeast state of British-ruled India in a city called Motihari. This is where George Orwell was born. He was born in present-day Bihar in India at the start of the 20th century, I think 1903. Orwell was actually his pen name. He was born Eric Arthur Blair. Although he was born in India, he didn't spend much time there as a child. A year after he was born, his mother moved him and his sister to Oxfordshire, England. His father stayed in India. Orwell attended an all-boys British boarding school called St. Cyprian School in England. He goes through his schooling and doesn't do well enough to go to university. And so, you know, he decides that he'll go back to Burma. And he has an aunt who's still there. So that's why Burma and not some other part of India. And he joins the uh, imperial police there. Just like his father and his forefathers, young Orwell worked for the British Empire. His time as a police officer would become a pivotal moment in his intellectual development. Through a series of wars, Britain gained full control of Burma in the early 19th century. In the northern part of the country, the British harvested teakwood. In the south, they set up rice plantations. They also mined the country for precious gems. All of this extraction caused environmental destruction and impoverished the local population. This is the world Orwell stepped into when he joined the Imperial Police in Burma. But he wasn't really cut out for the role. He, he never quite fit in with the culture of the, you know, the ruling class culture um, in, in Burma, um, where he was always a little too much interested in um, talking to uh, and getting to know the colonized subjects and their ways of life. Um, he was kind of considered an outsider. Uh, he would read a lot. He would not socialize properly um, with that community of um, British officials. And uh, he was impressed, you know, in all this time by the kind of everyday brutality and violence of British rule in Burma and India generally. You know, the way he described it was that the police were the actual machinery of despotism. So there's this realization that this is a despotism and that all the kind of whitewashing uh, propaganda about British rule in India, that, you know, that it's a civilizing mission, that it's about upliftment, that it's benevolent, that all of that is actually whitewashing um, and just rhetoric. And the reality on the ground is that it's um, a regime that's just covering for British theft of Indian wealth, Burmese wealth, and um, that rhetoric just enables all of that. Orwell felt an enormous amount of shame and guilt for contributing to Britain's rule over Burma. He would describe like he, these moments of rage when he would beat his servants and people like that. And so he sees this as it's his personal complicity, but it's also something systemic. That's, it's like a brutality that's cultivated by the system in anyone who participates in it. So he, he gets sort of very disillusioned by that experience and... Um, wants to have no part in it. Despite his misgivings, Orwell convinced himself to stay in the job, and he continued to work as a police officer for five years. 
In this time, he became increasingly distant from his British colleagues and more involved in Burmese culture. He went to local churches, became fluent in Burmese, and began to see imperialism through the eyes of the oppressed. In September of 1927, Orwell had a turning point. While on holiday with his family in England, he reassessed his life and decided to leave the police force and become a writer. He also decided that he no longer wanted to be on the side of the oppressor. He wanted to live among the oppressed. And for him, it's sort of easier to go native and um, pass as an oppressed person in uh, Europe uh, than he could in, in Burma. And so he makes this decision to resign and then starts living undercover under a false name as a tramp in London. Orwell was inspired by the American author Jack London, who spent time living among the poor working class in the East End of London and wrote about his experience in his 1903 book, The People of the Abyss. Like Jack London, Orwell spent a year exploring the poorer parts of London before he moved to Paris to join the working class as a dishwasher. Around this time, he began to write. He started some early sketches of novels, and he had some initial success as a journalist, publishing in various communist and socialist journals. This was a time when big political conversations were on everyone's lips. In Europe and Asia, communism versus liberal capitalism was debated in parliament halls and pubs alike. But Western sympathy for communism took a serious hit once stories of Stalin's regime began leaking out. Prison and execution for dissidents, ethnic cleansing, famines, and a vice grip on personal civic freedoms. Meanwhile, Orwell was finishing up his time in Paris. After about two years, he returned home to his parents' house in Suffolk, England. He became a high school teacher in London and continued writing. This starts the, you know, the beginning of his life as a writer. He's going to write his first book called Down and Out in, in Paris and London, which comes out in 1933. Down and Out in Paris and London is a memoir of his time living as a tramp. Orwell wrote this book for middle and upper class audiences, basically people like him. He wanted to expose them to the reality of poverty in these cities. And he has a new pen name with that book, George Orwell. Until that point, he had been Eric Blair. Orwell used a pen name to protect his family. He wanted to avoid any embarrassment they might feel about his choice to live in poverty. After Down and Out, he started writing fiction. His next work was Burmese Days, set in Burma during the end of the British Empire and intended to expose the dark side of the British Raj. He then wrote A Clergyman's Daughter, a novel about a young woman whose life takes a turn when she develops amnesia. Meanwhile, over in Spain, political tensions were escalating. Those on the left sought trade unions, secularization, and women's liberation. The right, rather comfortable with the status quo, worried about a communist revolution. Radical groups from both sides began to form, and by 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out. The Spanish Civil War, um, for, for a lot of European intellectuals and for British intellectuals too, it, it really made it clear that the kind of ideal, what had been a sort of theoretical or political argument about the, this contest between fascism and communism that's emerging, um, in that period. And it's so polarizing among intellectuals that this is, this is not just a political argument, that this is something that one needs to, practically speaking, take sides on, and it's becoming an actual war in Spain. Many intellectuals um, join uh, to fight in Spain on the Republican side against the fascists, 
and um, Orwell goes too. Um, and uh, he has a somewhat unique experience in that he fights with the PUM, the P-O-U-M, the he doesn't join, you know, the international brigades and the uh, communist units. He's he's with this um, small, uh, smaller, kind of um, anarchist slash Trotskyist uh, outfit, and it's physically extremely trying for him. I mean, he suffers a lot in this war. He's shot in the throat, um, and that's why he has to finally leave the war. But it's also disillusioning in the way he sees that. Um, the communist side, the Soviet-supported side of the war, um, basically betrays the non-conforming uh, other socialist uh, groups like the one that he was in, the, the POUM. The theme from the Spanish Civil War that struck me is that Orwell was a democratic socialist or a social democrat um, mm-hmm. opposed to oppressive empire and capitalism but also suspicious yes. of communism. Um, so, I mean, even that early encounter with trying to strike a middle ground of humane, you know, like care for liberal political principles maybe, but also um, socialist, you know, care mm-hmm. for the poor, that that starts in Spain. Uh, or, you know, I mean, it seems like an important moment happens uh, in Spain. I mean, like his early work, the down and out, Books are more, uh, that, that book was more documenting poverty and sort of, um, trying to help dispel prejudice amongst, you know, the readers who he, who he is assuming are, are men of a certain class like him, right? Um, but the, the, the politics of it are not that, are not clear, right? Um, but, but it's, it's in the middle of the thirties in that decade of commitment where all writers are sort of, um, having to be much more explicit about their political commitments as they write and make a clear choice between either socialism or fascism. Like, where do you stand in that argument? And how is his writing developing? What What are the themes that he keeps returning to? Yeah, so in the 1930s, um, you know, in that polarized atmosphere, it, it's, it's all, you know, either writing about, you know, his firsthand experiences in Spain uh, arguments in favor of socialism, a lot of book reviews, a lot of book reviews. He, you know, in one year he might write 80 book reviews. And, um, you know, as a, the war starts, uh, the Second World War, there is this kind of moment of despair um, that comes across in this very famous essay, Inside the Whale. It's almost like he's been so exhausted by um, arguing in favor of socialism and trying to persuade people to join that cause before it's too late. And then war breaks out and he's just so devastated and spiritually almost broken that he writes this essay that's ostensibly a review of Henry Miller's book, um, Tropic of Cancer. But but it, it is it reads as sort of this. Uh, call for qu- quietism, like when when everything else has failed, all you can do is stay sane and um, um, and human, you know. Um, and and it sticks out against uh, the backdrop of everything else he writes. And and during the war, you know, uh, he's continuing with lots and lots of um, prolific, you know, um, output uh, in terms of columns in newspapers and in magazines and book reviews, but he's also working for the BBC and doing like literary programs 
that are for the BBC Eastern Service that are aimed at an Indian audience. So this is, again, where, you know, his imperial politics are a little complicated, where um, he's justifying continuing to support British rule in India because he thinks the alternative is that the Nazis or, you know, the, Jap- the basically the Axis powers will take over India. During the Second World War, Orwell began working on what would become the first of his two most well-known books, Animal Farm. The story is a satirical novella in which he explores revolution and political systems through a decidedly approachable medium, talking animals. Animal Farm is a very thinly veiled critique of Stalin's Soviet Union and how a socialist or communist government can turn into a fascist dictatorship. Orwell published Animal Farm in 1945, and it was an immediate success. Orwell was now internationally famous and financially secure. He spent the next four years writing for various newspapers and literary magazines and writing his next masterpiece, 1984. The same month that Orwell published Animal Farm, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan and ended World War II. Almost immediately, a new conflict arose, a cold war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, the British Empire began to decolonize, with the crown jewel of India gaining independence in 1947. Where did the idea for 1984 come from? Um, When did he write it? The idea comes to him a little bit earlier, but the actual writing happens um, in 1947 to 1949. So decolonization has started to happen. The The reality of the atomic bomb has been made clear the Cold War has started. So I think that context is really important to understanding, um, you know, what he was trying to warn readers about with this novel. So um, it's a world of oppressive policing. It's a world in which war is endemic and meaningless. War-making is an ongoing, (laughs) an ongoing backdrop that licenses all that internal oppression and policing. Um, It's a world in which language is completely degraded and in which writing can have a revolutionary power. Could you give listeners a general plot summary? It's set in Britain, but Britain is no longer called Britain. It's called Airstrip One, and it's a province of this superstate called Oceania. And there's three superstates that are basically constantly at war, Oceania, East Asia and Eurasia. And uh, the party controls everything. And there's a possible, we never know for sure whether Big Brother, who's in charge of the whole thing, is a real character or not. We never know. So there's an inner party that really controls everything. And then there's these outer party members. And then beyond them is the bulk of the population who are the proles, the proletarians, right? The main character is a man named Winston Smith. He's a member of the outer party. And these party members are subjected to intense, constant surveillance. These telescreens that watch them all the time. And uh, he, his, his job is to kind of rewrite history all the time. So he works in an office where anytime the party declares, um, you know, okay, to, from now on, we're at war against, you know, we've been at war against Eurasia, but... Actually now, and East Asia was our ally, but now we're at war against East Asia and Eurasia is our ally. And then he has to go back and find all the old uh, issues of the newspaper, the Times, and change them so that it looks like there has been no change in party policy and that they've always been uh, at war with 
whoever I just said it was. <laughs> I'm not, I can't remember. It was East Asia then. So that's his job. And, um, and, you know, they're always watched and they always have to participate in these rituals of hate against the, you know, I guess what's the equivalent of like the, the Trotskyist uh, dissident, um, you know, rebels against this um, party order. Um, and he resolves in his mind to to rebel in some way. And the first step of that rebellion is that he buys this diary in an old junk shop in the kind of proletarian neighborhood uh, of this place. And he starts writing in it. And it's very difficult to do that because he's, the telescreens are always on and they're being watched. And eventually he starts this kind of torrid love affair with with this young girl who is also a party member. She works in the fiction department where these machines basically produce fiction. And uh, they feel their affair in itself is a kind of political act um, and a, a form of rebellion against the party. Both Winston and his paramour, Julia, know that what they're doing is against the rules, but they continue on anyway. And all this time, he suspects that there is this brotherhood of um, people who are plotting to, over time, break the power of this uh, of the party. And uh, he suspects that this one man who he sees occasionally in the party offices named O'Brien is part of this brotherhood. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, he and Julia, they rent a room in that same junk shop um, upstairs where they can have their assignations and um, and this carries on for some time and then um, they sure enough one day O'Brien connects with him and invites him to his flat says I'm going to I mean, he's sort of inducted he and Julia are inducted into this secret brotherhood and they're given a book and this is again that familiar kind of disruption you find in a lot of Orwell's books where there's a book inside the book so you get the actual text of this um, manual um, that is a text for the Brotherhood. And so, um, you know, Julia and Winston read this and uh, they think they're part of this Brotherhood. They pledge to it. And then one day when they're in that rented room, uh, they just they're being they discover they're being watched. And all along there was a telescreen hidden behind this picture on the wall and they're completely naked and they're you know arrested and um, then they're submitted to this long regime of torture in which, you know, the ultimate test is, is Winston going to betray um, Julia? Because that's what will not, be as long as he doesn't betray her, he's still human, um, he thinks, right? They haven't utterly destroyed him. The system wants to mold Winston into the perfect party member, a reliable, pliable pawn. But as long as Winston holds on to his feelings for Julia... He remains free. And even if he betrays all, everything about her, you know, what her crimes have been, as long as he doesn't betray his feelings for her, he's, he's still one, he believes. And so he goes through this long, really terrifying process of torture. It's very difficult to read, actually. Um, but it's also very page, like you have to read it you know, but it's, you're hating reading it. And then in the end, he thinks he's still one out. It turns out that O'Brien reveals himself and, says, and he finds out that all along there was no brotherhood and that O'Brien is actually a member of the Thought Police and that he's been sort of 
framed into all of this thought crime that he's being punished for. And O'Brien is determined to reconstruct him as someone who truly believes in Big Brother, that loves Big Brother. And the way, and, and, and Winston thinks as long as he has these feelings for Julia, you know, he's still winning. And what happens is in the end, he goes to room 101, uh, which has always been this forbidding, looming room in the Ministry of Love, which is where all this torture takes place. And he um, is forced to confront his worst fear, which is this cage of rats. Um, and this has been built up throughout that we know that he hates rats. And when the rats surround his face, he finds himself figuring out that he, if he can just wish that the rats instead attacked, attack Julia and he will be saved, that he will be saved. And so he thinks this and he says it out loud, put, put the rats on Julia, not on me. And then he knows he's betrayed Julia completely. And so the party has won. Big Brother has won. And then, you know, Julia, we don't see this in the book, but she's been subjected to similar routines. And then eventually they both come out of the Ministry of Love. They do meet by chance. All their feelings are gone. They're broken and defeated. And then the book closes with Winston realizing that he now loves Big Brother and he'll accept whatever reality the party says, that two plus two is five, that black is white. What well, You know, he's completely broken and remade as a proper party person. It's a very, very bleak ending. It seems like one way of reading Animal Farm and 1984 is that it is a attack and a critique on Stalin's Soviet Union, mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so a question I have for you is, what was at stake in kind of the the European or American perception of Stalin and kind of the challenge that those who wanted socialism but not Stalinism were facing and kind of how they tried to navigate that? It was, for sure, a critique of Stalinism and the way um, Stalinism... Um, or Soviet communism violates every tenet of communism in the name of communism. And that's exactly what, you know, the party's ideology of Ingsoc, uh, as it is in, called in 1984, that's, they, you know, they, they violate every principle of socialism in the name of socialism, that kind of warped logic. So he definitely is attacking that, but he's doing it very much as a member of the left, as someone who's worried about the way Soviet communism has betrayed um, the actual totally legitimate, still necessary uh, socialist goals and commitments of the left. Orwell set the novel in Britain and not some fictional place because he saw what was happening with the Soviet Union as a possible reality for Britain. I mean, he saw the potential for that where he was. Um, again, building on what he had seen in the British Empire, but also the way um, Britain had changed during World War II and the alliance that the British made with the Soviet Union, um, that also he felt was very dangerous. Um, and the way um, policing techniques that had always been used in the empire were being increasingly used in Britain itself. Um, as the empire was unraveling and as you get more non-white 
uh, immigrants into Britain right then. Um, so the same kinds of surveillance techniques being used at home in a very worrying way to him. I think it's easy to look at Stalin and, and Hitler and be like, they were bad because they killed a lot of people. Um, but the, the critique is deeper than just bodily harm. It's the way it takes over the cultural life um, of a society and the ability to live as a free and dignified person. The needle that Orwell seems to try to thread in his work is how do you work collectively towards a common good and yet preserve the dignity of an individual to express truth as they see it? Yes, absolutely. I think privacy is a concept that's so deeply important to his thought and his work, right? That That is the way to secure both those objectives where you have um, socialism, uh, a collective existence, you're collectively um, pushing back against oppression, um, but there's still space preserved for um, private thoughts, uh, expression of individual ideas and opinions. I mean, I think reconciling those things was, was and how to reconcile them was so central to his, his work. And, um, and he just had a profound faith that it was doable, um, but then this endless frustration that it was not happening. Um, and I think that's where you see again and again that the pessimism uh, kind of despite himself. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that obviously it's people on the left continue to strive for. It's, 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 that's the utopian goal, right? <laughs> that's kind of the utopian goal and you've got to have one. Otherwise, you know, what, what do you, what do you, how do you feel motivated to work towards anything? So what, what was the reception of the book when it came out? Um, how was it received by East and West? You know, it comes out in June 1949, and Orwell dies six months later. And I, he never knew what a, I don't know if he realized what a tremendous success this book was going to be commercially. Um, I don't actually know about the reception in the Soviet Union or whether it was allowed there or not. I know that at different times the book was banned in different places, but you know, it's available in China today. Um, it has been for a few decades, um, easily available. Um, and there are moments in which there'll be these, it will rush to the top, you know, as a bestseller again and again, when, you know, when um, in our public conversations, Orwell is invoked. And, and you see him invoked right now while we're having this conversation. He has been invoked a lot as the, you know, after Black Lives Matter, that protest movement started and the conversations about statues. And um, that has prompted a lot of people on different sides of the political spectrum trying to claim Orwell once again for right and left. So he's, and, and that's mostly based on 1984. I mean, I think, again, in the U.S. especially, there's sort of Orwell is 1984. There's a lot of uh, ignorance of, uh, or and maybe Animal Farm, but not a lot of awareness of the trajectory that took him to those two books. So when they mean Orwellian, they mean 1984. They don't mean uh, socialist. <laughs> they don't mean Burma. Uh, yeah. 
So, um, but yeah, extremely relevant. Um, he's one of the few authors like Kafka who has an adjective, uh, you know, his name has become an adjective, like there's Kafkaesque, there's Orwellian, there are very few, there's Tolstoyan, uh, Shakespearean, there are not that many, um, but his, his name is one of those. But Orwellian can mean a few different things. It can mean like dystopian in the sense of 1984, or it can mean a certain kind of writing that's Orwellian in a very, in a much more positive sense. Do you think he's a good guide? Do you think that 1984 helps us understand our moment? Or, or do you think that it's misused um, in, some, in some degree? I think anytime there's a questioning of received narratives uh, that have been, that were written in the era of imperialism or the Cold War. And so we know that they're warped and um, need revision. Anytime there's a question about that and anyone wants to change it or challenge it, they start crying Orwell, you know, or this is an Orwellian erasure of history without realizing that those narratives already erased a lot of uh, history and reality and truth. And Orwell himself would have been the first to say that, right? I mean, that was what he always said, that the Pakka Sahib code of um, the British ruling class did not allow truth to come out. And he, I mean, I, I've, I feel he would have been on the side of those who would revise uh, those narratives. So I, I feel the right is is too eager to cry, you know, Orwellian and make claims about history being rewritten um, and it's too easy. So I, I mean, I, and, and I, and they use his name, invoke his name in ways that I think, you know, would make him turn over in his grave because he was not on the side of uh, those who celebrated empire in any form. What influence do you track this book as having besides sort of this, the way in which these words have seeped into national consciousness? I mean, I think the book was kind of misused during the Cold War. I think people read it so out of context and it was, you know, it was uh, co-opted into the Cold War that way. So I think it served, you know, the the Western side of that um, conflict um, in unfortunate ways. Um, more positively, I do think at the same time, especially in Britain, people who were more maybe aware of the context um, wielded it more effectively as in, in to to criticize forms of um, uh, encroaching, uh, you know, government impression, oppression. Um, you know, whether you think of you know rock singers and all who would uh, write songs based on this, but then there's been this kind of almost weird caricaturing of it, like with the reality shows like Big Brother and stuff that I think sort of borrow from this text without being aware of what it was critiquing. And uh, that's, 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 um, it's very disturbing, actually. Um, but, you know, in the, in the scandals that have come out in the last couple of decades about government surveillance in the United States, I think people have very um, rightly, you know, drawn on this text, um, quoted from it, pointed out the similarities, the, you know, the dangerous direction in which that surveillance is going. And I think this text can be very, very useful in pushing back against that kind of uh, government policing. And that was entirely his intention, I think. That is the purpose of the book. 1984 was the last book Orwell wrote. 
He was near the end of his life, and he was very sick. He was suffering um, physically, and I think that's a really important context, too, um, and why this, why a darker dystopian novel would be the choice more than something brighter and sunnier, given where he was in his life. And everyone he loved had died, right? His first wife, his parents, his sister, you know, so at that point, you know, he had Right before he died, he married again, um, just literally two months before he died on his, you know, while as a patient, you know. And so this is, it's, he was, it, this was a dark, dark phase of life. And, and I think if you're going to write something inspiring, you would then tend towards dystopia more than utopia. That's my guess. Could you say a word about just his influence on writers? Yeah, he's an idol for writers. Um, and, you know, f- certain famous phrases like your writing should be clear as a window pane. And um, he hated theory for that reason. So very empirical writing also. Um, spare, he hated semicolons. Uh, he gave even certain a set of rules in, in his essay, Politics in the English Language, of, you know, how to, how to, you know, sort of, Good, good guidance, advice even for um, how to be a good writer. But just the attention to ways in which you can often use uh, ready-made phrases um, and the danger of that. And I know some of the Google technologies do that automatically in uh, when you write emails on Google platforms or Google documents. Um, I have my kids disable that. I think everyone should do that and be, be aware of that. I mean, it, when you allow others to provide you with phrases, you are allowing, you are losing your independence of thought. And I think he was absolutely correct about that. So I think writing what you know, um, again, that's again, another way of being highly empirical, spare language, direct language, not a lot of theory, clean prose without too many semicolons. I think that is probably generally good advice, but um, you know, it doesn't fit everyone. Um, but there are parts of that that everyone should borrow. And, and and just the idea of reflecting on your habits as a writer is, I think, extremely helpful and something that every writer ought to do at some point. I mean, the reason he favors spare language is, is an, it's aesthetically preferable to him. Um, but it's also because of the connection he perceives between s- truth and language. So when you... When you don't write in a direct way, um, you will inevitably lose some element, some quotient of truth. It's about truth. It's about public knowledge and uh, uh, you know preventing um, the masses from being duped by um, the press and by their government. Art gives us the power to encounter other minds and other worlds. Orwell hoped his writing would help lead to social liberation, but he ended his life disappointed because the utopia of his dreams seemed to stay lingering at the horizons of his sight, ever out of reach. I think the danger Orwell fell into, or the problem he fell into, the reason why he would get so defeatist and frustrated is he actually expected you know, liberation to be something that's going to come at the end of struggling and struggling and struggling. And then he was always disappointed. Whereas, uh, you know, someone like Gandhi <laughs> would say, you know, 
it's it's in the struggle that you're experiencing that liberation. There's never going to be an end to that struggle. So you have to assume it's always going to be only partially successful or successful in a limited sense and that there's always going to be yet more work to do. And if you start out with that expectation, you're less likely to be disappointed and you're more likely to engage in the struggle for the sake of the struggle, knowing that it's in engaging in that, that you're... Um, you know, and in the, and engaging it together with others that you're together collectively, uh, experiencing some, something that's going to be the closest, closest, um, experience of liberation that you can actually find. He was always waiting for the revolution to happen that will change everything. And it, he didn't understand that in his own process of urging revolution and in, uh, the incompleteness of revolution, there's, there's still a revolution that's happening. These were anxieties he felt in 1947-48-49 and we've gone through the cold war we've gone through the war on terror and i think we're still in that moment in a sense i mean none of those issues have been resolved about policing about war making you know forever wars and um and the degradation of languages if anything much 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 worse now than then so i guess just to note the the contemporary relevance of the book that way and it's it's sadly still, you know, um, depicting a, a dystopia that urgently needs to be warded off. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair on Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.